0: The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, February 22nd, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, And here at The Gist, we are here to point you to the news, to orient you with insight, to perhaps offer an argument. But also, a key service we provide is to tell you what not to pay attention to. So I want to update you on what's going on with the Brexit. The Brexit is the British exit proposed, will be referendumed or plebiscited on, on June 23rd, where Britain can leave the European Union. So what's happened is all of Europe wooed David Cameron. Come on, Dave, stay. We'll make it better. We'll make the rules nicer for you. We'll make the beer warmer, whatever you like. Today, famous UK politician Boris Johnson came out in favor of the Brexit, but Cameron's against the Brexit. But I want to give you our Brexit coverage, our branded gist Brexit update. Here now, your breaking Brexit update. Brexit. 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 Easy go. Whether to stay in.
1: Easy go.
0: Or go. It isn't over. a like Brexit. Yeah, it's probably not going to happen. I just wouldn't worry. This has been your breaking Brexit update. Brexit. 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 I subscribe to the Financial Times. I, I was attracted to it for the orange cover, but I think maybe I've been getting too much Brexit news. Anyway, on the show, Morning Joe and Marco Rubio, the more you know. But first, Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders, not resoundingly, not emphatically, but demonstrably in Nevada, her first real win, Maybe one thing giving voters pause isn't what Bernie says he wants to do. But the question, can Bernie really do that? So right now we're going to talk to a veteran of White House's past. Okay, it was the Clinton White House. But still, to see how much of what Bernie is saying is possible if he doesn't get the agreement of all those Republicans in the House and Senate. The explanations for why Bernie Sanders is doing so well against Hillary Clinton mostly fall along these lines. He's offering uplift, vision, and aspiration, while she's offering competence, vigilance, and execution. Now, Hillary Clinton would argue that she, too, has a vision. Her rhetoric might not soar so high, but the results are more likely to happen. Sanders would counter that he, too, will bring results. But his assurance of results, to my mind, rests a little bit on... Uplift and hope and aspiration. He says with his victory, his vision will gain momentum and there'll be a revolution. Let me quote from a town hall in Iowa. A 72 year old retired teacher asked him, How are you going to get these things passed? He answered, I'm not a magician. The only way we get real change in America is when millions of people stand up and demand it. That's what the political revolution is all about. Well, maybe. Jane Nettleton, the 72-year-old retired teacher, was one of the 12 people or so who separated Clinton and Sanders in Iowa. William Galston holds a chair at the Brookings Institution's Government and Studies Program, and he's a former policy advisor to President Bill Clinton, worked on several presidential campaigns and with candidates. He's an expert on domestic policy. So thanks for joining me. Good to be here. So before we uh, even get into our analysis, have you publicly supported either candidate? Well, it depends on what you mean by public.
1: Uh, I had the office across from Hillary Clinton's in, in the West Wing for two and a half years in the 1990s, and uh, I developed an enormous respect for her capacities, and I haven't changed my mind
0: since. Okay, so she's very experienced. But without a Congress, how much of any president's agenda really can get passed? The answer to
1: your question, Mike, is... Not very much. And uh, that is especially true in, in the case of someone like Senator Sanders who in effect is proposing a new New Deal for the 21st century. Uh, it is an enormously ambitious legislative agenda. It is not an incremental agenda. It's not something that can be moved very far forward within the four corners of existing legislative authority. It just isn't. I mean there are things that you can do to improve or modify the Affordable Care Act given the amount of executive discretion that's built into the act. But if you're trying to move from that to a single-payer program,
0: you need one of the biggest pieces of legislation in American history. And we should note that the Congress, the next Congress, right now the Senate's 54 to 46. Suppose you could create a scenario where the Democrats flip New Hampshire and flip Florida and flip Arizona and hold on to Colorado and win the Senate. There's really no realistic chance of them taking the House. So it would seem that he will not have or she will not have both houses of Congress. So what other levers are there? What about executive actions? What about the appointments? I mean, that means something, right? Well, let me just pause at the threshold of your question uh, to say that Senator
1: Sanders has been talking about a political revolution. If he were to be elected president, that would in and of itself be a political revolution. It would mean that just as he's been arguing, millions and millions and millions of new voters who hadn't previously participated, or at least certainly not regularly, would have surged into the system in the same way that overall turnout expanded enormously when Franklin Roosevelt was elected president in 1932. The, the difference between 32 and 28 in turnout was really staggering. So under those circumstances, it would not be unreasonable to expect that there would be profound changes at the senatorial and congressional level as well. So I'd make so bold as to say that if Senator Sanders were elected president— Mm -hmm. it would be such an unusual against the odds event uh, that there might well be a change of majority in both the House and the Senate. I'm not saying that that would happen, but I can tell you this. The Republicans have a structural advantage in the House of Representatives such that the Democratic popular vote for the House would have to be about six percentage points higher than the Republicans in order for the Democrats to have an even chance of taking back the House. So if Democrats were to win the House vote, and I'm not predicting this, this is just speculation, by the same margin, namely 53 to 46, that Barack Obama beat John McCain in 2008, then they would probably control the House, as they did after
0: 2008, (laughs) Okay, but let's say Bernie Sanders does get elected and he doesn't control both houses. Mm -hmm. What what can he do? What can he do without the okay of the legislature? Obviously,
1: perhaps not so obviously, you can try to put your people in charge of important uh, cabinet departments and independent agencies. The problem with that, of course, is that many of those appointments themselves require confirmation by the Senate. If you try to put in uh, leaders uh, of those departments and agencies who are seen as sort of off-the-charts radical, Mm -hmm. then the Senate might conceivably say no. (laughs) And the confirmations process has been really gummed up for a really long time, largely because of political polarization And I could imagine that the sorts of people that Senator Sanders, as the president, would want to put into positions of executive authority would be quite distasteful uh, to the Republicans, all of them, Uh, and they would do what they could to block them. So that may seem like a slam dunk. You bring in your own team, but not so fast. Of course, there is the route of executive orders. But there are limits to executive orders because their writ can go no farther than the legislation uh, that makes them legitimate. And as we've seen, if you try to use executive orders to outrun the perimeter of the law, then the third branch of government will be brought in to adjudicate the dispute between the executive branch and Congress, and that won't necessarily work out in favor of the president. There's a huge dispute right now about President Obama's very ambitious executive order on on immigration prosecution priorities, and it's entirely conceivable uh, that he is going to lose that fight right. in court. So there are checks built into the system. Another strategy that you can use is the regulatory strategy. There is existing legislation much of which is phrased by the congressional drafters in quite general terms, the understanding being uh, that, that regulations will fill in the gap between the general language of the law and the particular cases that the law is going to have to govern. But as we've seen very recently, there again, the courts can step in if too much daylight opens up between the legislation on the one hand, and the language of the regulation on the other. We're We've seen that with the Kentucky
0: big, EPA yeah. coal
1: case. Yeah, exactly. And we're about to have a really big fight about the Clean Air Act and you know, how far regulations can go, et cetera. So every direction that you look offers opportunities, but also limits. And in the end, there is no substitute for
0: the capacity to legislate. Now, I want to ask you, as someone who has seen Hillary Clinton up close and is an expert on U.S. governance, it's not totally true that Bernie Sanders doesn't have his pragmatic side. He worked with Republicans for VA legislation. And it's certainly not totally true that all Hillary Clinton does is uh, measure twice and cut once. I mean, she's had some pretty big swings, too. But is it, is it real, really mostly true, do you think? They have different
1: assessments of what's possible and the circumstances under which the boundaries of what's possible might be expanded. And I take Senator Sanders at his word. He wants to change the entire political calculus and balance that has dominated and gridlocked American politics for quite some time now. That is a perfectly logical and consistent objective. You're not going to get someone like Senator Sanders elected let alone his program enacted without a very very sh- significant shift in the electoral balance of power and because of polarization in the el- in the existing electorate the only way you create that massive change is by changing the composition of the electorate and other than shooting your enemies Uh, The only way of doing that is inviting millions and millions of your friends into the system
0: and having them respond to your call. That's what he's doing. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Not only do Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders represent different visions for America, they, they, in a sense, represent different theories about voting. If you were to construct the ideal voter, would that voter, would he or she, every four years, presidential voter, say... I'm looking for inspiration, I want to be uplifted, or would that voter say, I want to choose a practical set of policies that I favor? What is there a better way to think about how we should go about making our decisions in the voting booth? I think the political system would be healthier if
1: candidates campaigned on the basis of a reasonable assessment of what they think they can actually get done, And if voters were inclined to take the reality principle more seriously, that may not correspond with their deepest aspirations, but it seems to me that the human condition doesn't coincide with our deepest aspirations and isn't likely to anytime soon. Now, I am marking myself as a gray old fuddy-duddy by making (laughs) that argument, but I genuinely believe that... A huge
0: gap between promise and performance is bad for a democracy. Yeah. You know, coming into this, I kind of was saying to myself, well, Obama maybe can be seen as the best of both worlds in that he campaigned with a message of hope, but really governed quite responsibly and thinking of moving the aircraft carrier two degrees at a time. Some version of Cuomo's govern in prose, but campaign in poetry. You're kind of pointing out the other side of that. Maybe that's the worst of both worlds. There has to be a pretty tight connection between the prose and the poetry.
1: And it is impossible to inspire without misleading. Yeah. It's possible to be hopeful without arousing false hopes. My academic roots are in moral and political philosophy. And I do think that there are ethical dimensions of democratic politics. And one of them is being very, very aware of your capacity as a candidate or an elected official to do harm. In the name of aspiring to do good, the relationship in a mass democracy between electors, uh, between voters and elected officials who in the case of the federal government go hundreds or even thousands of miles away in order to do the people's business is always vulnerable to an outburst of mistrust. Uh, People are always tempted to believe that when their candidates are elected and go to Washington, they go native. There's mm-hmm. somehow something seductive about national politics uh, that wrenches them away from their previous course uh, and undermines their character, corrupts them, etc. That's a very old theme in American politics. So you have to be aware of that. And you have to lean against it. And a strategy of promises made, promises kept is really important in maintaining a
0: reasonable bond of trust between the people and their elected officials. William A. Galston, he holds a chair at the Brookings Institution's Governance Studies Program, a veteran of the Clinton White House. Thank you so much, Professor Galston. (laughs) My pleasure. And now the spiel. No, Joe, say it ain't so. I like the morning Joe. For a couple reasons. One, I like the morning part, and I like the Joe part. I like Joe Scarborough. The guy's a good communicator. And I like, when I say I like the morning part, I like the fact that the podcast posts, I don't know, around 10 in the morning, so I could listen to that morning's discussion right after it airs. I like the panelists, because they're usually pretty smart people who say usually pretty smart things, but mostly because they're a helpful barometer of conventional wisdom. This collection of mostly centrist, wise men, and some women in their 40s through 60s, I would say collectively centrist. You got Wall Street Journal editorial types. You got your barnacle, who still pretends he's a liberal. But you add it all up, collectively centrist, mostly men, some women, 40s through 60s. It's Just a great stand-in of what conventional wisdom is. You know, this is the show that they play in the Senate gym. But there is one topic, one person, for whom Morning Joe becomes unconventional indeed. That man's name is Marco Rubio. Do you think that's something that has really started to sink in? People are looking a lot closer at Marco Rubio, and wait a second, what has he ever done? Because the other candidates have been complaining about it for a long time, that he's never accomplished anything. What has he done to Joe Scarborough might be the question, That comes to mind if you watch Enough Morning Joe talk about Marco Rubio. Those comments were made after that debate performance where Marco went on repeat. Scarborough said that was such a mistake it would be talked about for 30 years. Scarborough wondered if it was a disqualifying mistake, and indeed, Rubio did finish fifth in New Hampshire. This, to Scarborough and his assemblage of pundits, was taken not as a sign of tarnish, but of corrosion then after rubio gave his concession speech where he stopped spinning his mistake as a blessing in disguise panelist willie geist wondered he's handled this great the last two days Right after he he was he was great right there but the question is is it too late now too late after two states days later frequent panelist and head of john mccain's presidential campaign steve schmidt said rubio was cooked i think voters have rendered a judgment on (sighs) rubio they saw somebody we talked last week. What are his accomplishments? Was this a Rick, his, was this a Rick Perry moment? When, yeah, absolutely. When we when we talked last week about his accomplishments, we talked about his accomplishment is that he has great potential, mm-hmm. right? That he's gotten himself elected to the United States Senate. So we saw in that debate that great potential evaporate. Voters in this state rendered a judgment: not ready to be commander in chief. He's off the island. It's a brutal. It's done. There are too many good candidates. Too many good candidates. No room for Marco. Then, a couple of days before the South Carolina results, Morning Joe was writing out Rubio, writing him out of the race entirely.
1: We may be heading for a Cruz Trump one on one
0: showdown. Now, there are a few things at play here. One is that there is media bias, mainly. They're biased towards conflict. They're biased towards drama, rises and falls. It's not necessarily that they're consciously concocting a narrative of stumble, then redemption. It's just that the media gets so charged with the idea of comeback kids and surges and unsteady, shaky frontrunners. They just can't help themselves. So you get this whole universe of events, right? Right. Sometimes good things happen to a candidate. Sometimes bad things happen to a candidate. But if you factor it in through this lens of conflict, all the good news seems momentous and all the bad news seems crushing. There's something else going on in this specific case. There is history between Scarborough and Rubio. Rubio was Speaker of the Florida House when Scarborough was still a sitting U.S. congressman, and both were seen as the fair-haired boys of Florida politics. Though they are both impressively coiffed to this day, Rubio's a politician on the rise, and it's clear that Scarborough sees his job as taking some of the air out of the balloon. So after that debate gaffe, Here's Scarborough, quote, I've been criticized for saying Marco looks too robotic, too prepackaged and too young, he noted to the New York Times, continuing the quote, but everything I've said alone for months is now being repeated this morning by everyone else in the political world. My critiques weren't personal. They were right. It's kind of a trap I can identify with. You host a show where you give your opinion, you hold a view that maybe a lot of people disagree with. When you get some confirmation of your view, man, do you want to pound it? I was right. See, I nailed it. You should probably listen to me in the future. If there is a graph of Rubio's rise and fall, maybe Scarborough regarded all the troughs as illustrative and interpreted all the crests as merely ephemeral. The way I see it, Rubio has slightly worse odds than Donald Trump at being the Republican nominee slightly better odds than Donald Trump of eventually becoming president of the United States. I've always thought this. I've always said this. I guess if you examine my coverage of Rubio, you would find some evidence that I've been making this prediction or at least holding this view. So that differs from Scarborough. But there is one way that Scarborough and I are in the same boat when it comes to the junior senator from Florida. Since he's been running for president, Marco Rubio has not appeared on either of our shows. And that's it for today's show. You know, it's going to turn into a Bash Bernie week. I didn't want it to happen, but I know it's going to. So I'm trying to find the best Bernie surrogates out there. If you have great suggestions for people you've heard talking about Bernie, talking him up, making great points, maybe contradicting William Galston, who we played on the show, give us a note at SlateGist or at Pesca Mi on Twitter or Facebook.com slash SlateGist. Andrea Salenzi, just producer's favorite Bernie surrogate, is Ben, not Jerry. Why? Well, she once got a hold of some chunky monkey that was a little funky. We think Jerry was in charge of monkey funkiness. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast's favorite Bernie surrogate, are the remaining members of Vampire Weekend. Of course, Rostam Batmanglij has left the band. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network's favorite Bernie Sanders surrogate, is Dudley Dudley. Yes, New Hampshire politician, Dudley Dudley. She was born Dudley Webster, she married a Dudley, now she's Dudley Dudley. It lists him on the Bernie surrogate page. The gist, we are favoring Dick Van Dyke, Mark Ruffalo, Janine Garofalo, Jeff Marlin, Margot Kidder, and George Went. Oh yeah, they're all backing Bernie, but man, what a Cannonball Run remake that would be. um puru da du puru and thanks for listening.